Hey everybody, welcome to We've Got Ward, a Daily Planet Productions podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss Ward while those return to the world of parahumans. My name is Mystic Podforce Matt, and this is my co-host, Super Voice Fantastic Scott. Form of podcasters. Oh, I didn't know you were going to do sound effects. That's cool. We were, we just, we just fusioned. Of Of course. I don't know how this works. I don't watch anime. That's okay. We're done now. <laughs> As you said, this is the podcast where you and I eagerly dive into Wild Bo's world of unfortunate anime heroes, massive interdimensional portals, and alien-based death powers. As we analyze and interpret this ongoing web serial, this week we finish up Arc 6 with chapters 6.8 and 6.9. After the contentious back and forth with Tattletale, Victoria and company convince her to help out without giving up Cradle, and the team moves to stop the Crowleys in Boston. We quickly quickly find out that the Crowleys aren't just here for a little bit of the old ultraviolence, but are actually planning something big. The heroes scramble to prevent it, but just as they eliminate the Fenway Station station forces, Tinker devices activate all over the city, opening opening the interdimensional portals to massive, uncontrollable sizes, and killing Jessica Yamada. And that's how we end the arc. This is a couple of couple of really intense, really stressful, really emotional chapters here, Matt. Yeah. Um, wrapping up this arc, which has been, you know, it's lived up to its namesake. Um, and I, I think these these two in particular um, remind me of, of how how intense this story can get. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's some some really like I think I think reading this the first time I said, oh, shit, a few times. Um, and it was always like the, the funny thing about reading this book is these moments that are like tragic. You can't help but like love because you're like devastated. But then you're like, oh, man, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like you're always kind of torn. Yeah, that's that's kind of the level on which I've always appreciated. While those stories is, is the like, oh, that that hurts so much. I love it. Um, <laughs> so so this is perfect. Perfect. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so yeah, before we get into it, uh, we'll go over some quick announcements. Uh, we released our first Weaver Dice episode on this feed um, last week. We had a lot of fun doing that. Seems like you guys liked it too, and we'll be releasing those episodes every other week. Uh, by the way, if you tweet about us and, and our Weaver Dice show using the uh, hashtag We've Got Dice, all one word, uh, then we we might we might use your name as a character's name if your name happens to be something that would work perfectly as a cape name, or you, who knows, man, we'll figure it out. Hey Matt, isn't that exactly what they do uh, with the adventure? Shut, shut up! Shut the fuck up, Scott. Oh, so, sorry, sorry. Um. All right. Moving what's on. Next? <laughs> uh, <laughs> so. This is the part where we read what people wrote from last week's thread. Uh, the discussion question from last week was, should the Misfit Toys, or whatever you want to call them, call it quits, disband, give up? And uh, it seems like most of you guys said no. Uh, yeah, but, a lot of you. Almost all of you. Yeah. And that's that's cool. We're going to walk through some of the, the various opinions here. So first from Ace of Sword. Ace of Sword relates the idea of them giving up uh, back to the argument the team gave to Ashley. Ashley stated she'd wait till they failed to leave, and they said, no, wait till we 
we crash and burn. Um, and, and, and they haven't crashed and burned yet, basically. Yeah. So that's a, that's a good point. Um, I think they say that, that quitting on their, like quitting right now wouldn't help with their failures. And, uh, the white squirrel agrees with that, uh, argues that, that while each member of the team has their issues and are dysfunctional people, they've never really been dysfunctional as a team. Um, in fact, through the last few chapters, we've seen them get quite good at working together. The White Scroll goes on to say, sure, at first they looked like six or seven people just doing their own things, but now they work together really well. So no, I don't think the team part of it is the problem and they shouldn't break up because of it. Executioner 404 noticed that everyone was seeming to say they should stay together, uh, themselves including included, and they wanted to know exactly when that happened. Because, you know, the first few arcs of the story, we spent learning about all the red flags and all the arguments for why this team was a bad idea. And then we watched as all those problematic issues came to fruition and everyone who said this team was a bad idea was vindicated. And yet everyone now seems to want them to carry forward. And uh, this poster wonders if they're being too lenient on the team now because we have grown to love them and also they're the main characters of the story. So, of course, they should stay together. And, and and basically, Executioner 404 is wondering, are we suffering from the same sunk cost fallacy that Sveta is going through? Yeah, that was an interesting one. I like that a lot. Um, I mean, there is a certain amount of we've grown to like these people now, so we want them to succeed. And and we also know that they're main characters in the story. I think a, like a lot of people said, well, they can't break up because of the story. And yeah. I was like, yeah, OK, true. But like from a from a ethical, moral standpoint or a, a outside the world of the story standpoint. Um, right, yeah. I, I think I'll save my, my own thoughts till the end, though. Cool, cool. Um, next we have Shin, Shinichi07, who argues that the team has found more has more potential to heal together than to heal apart. These are very damaged people who have found common ground of acceptance and even trust with each other. The original damsel would have never turned herself in or asked for permission to fight like Ashley had. Kenzie could far too easily be manipulated into crime with the promise of affection. Tristan and Byron seem to both want to be accepted for who they are individually instead of being a package deal. Chris wants to be able to feel something again. Sveta wants to stand on her own two feet and be a hero without piggybacking off of Weld's fame. And finally, Victoria just wants something to go right in her new life. So all these people, um, Sinichi's argument is that all their problems, all their wants, all their needs are served better in a group setting than individually on your own. And I think that's a pretty good point. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely a good point. And you you could you could make the rebuttal like, well, that doesn't mean they need to be a cape team. That just means they should stay together. But I think the sure. reality is that, like, for example, Kenzie, uh, you know, it seems like she if she wasn't being a cape with these guys, she would be a cape with someone else. And, and that someone else could just as easily manipulate her. Yeah, that's true. Julio says that in an ideal world, they should stop being together as a cape team and continue on as a support group slash surrogate family. Uh, but theirs is a violent and unpredictable world. Um, so in the end, they should stay together to protect each other and to protect other people from each other. I like that last part. That's something that most people don't bring up. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Pizza hot dog lover, though, decides to go against the crowd and they say yes they should disband. He wrote a very long post, um, but was nice enough to sum it up for us at the bottom. So I didn't have to pick through it and, and sum it myself. Uh, pizza says they should disband for three reasons. 
Number one, they need to deal with their own issues first, and distracting themselves with fights just makes those issues worse. Number two, they're half-assing it by trying to play cops and robbers when it's a law of the motherfucking jungle, and that's going to get people killed. And number three, they excuse getting in over their heads again and again by pretending like they'll just stay on the sidelines when they know they're going to keep rushing in to play cowboy. Uh, I definitely agree with that last one, for sure. Yeah, we see that a lot in this arc. Um, I think... I think I'll, I'll inject my opinion here, which, which is that like what they should actually do is they should all just stop being capes, go home, get normal jobs and try to live mundane lives. Uh, that, of course, is not realistic and it's not going to happen. And many of them have basically stated like, look, I, I have to do this cape stuff. And even the ones who haven't said that, we know how parahumans work. We know they get sucked into it regardless. So it's like based on the fact that you can't just tell them to retire um they are probably just as well off as a team um with each other as they would be in in other cape teams all of that modulo the fact that there's probably still some horrible thing lurking under the surface that we're not aware of (laughs) the thing that jessica yamada was worried about that we don't know what it is that she never got a chance to tell victoria before disappearing and or dying so there's that 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 would be my number one reason for them not being together (laughs) just a dramatic irony or whatever yeah um i was probably when when we asked this question i was probably more on the side of yeah they need to take a time off from this cape thing they need to take time off from active duty as a team together uh i think the end of these chapters the end of this arc kind of convinced me otherwise actually and i think that's that's cool that we asked this question at seemingly the perfect time because i asked the question i saw people's responses and then i read two chapters that changed my mind and uh so uh, it's pretty cool and we'll get into that i think when we get to it good point yeah uh so as for general discussion Peter enigma had some great thoughts regarding how much they hate tattletale <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll, i guess i'll just read all this yeah sure the blame for Taylor's path lies on Taylor, but she never would have gotten that far without the assistance of the ever-manipulative and greedy best friend she had. She was always hypocritical as well. She led Taylor to hell, and then when, when Taylor had finally sunk to her lowest depths, Tattletale had the gall to get upset, as if she had nothing to do with it. And here we see her continuing the pattern. I'm gonna react to Twitter a little here. Aiden is with her all the time as an assistant, but Victoria is wrong for Kinsey. All of her actions are perfect and everyone else is wrong. No matter how many people she shatters, lives she ruins, or times she fucks up. Yeah, so that's a very, very harsh and probably controversial opinion of Tattletale. Um, I think we've talked, uh, Pete is an old, an old listener of the podcast, and I think we've had many a conversation about Tattletale. Um, I'm not quite as harsh on her as he is, but I think I think it's, it's very fair to say that uh, Tattletale has some uh, responsibility in the things that happen around her, and she continuously eschews that responsibility wherever possible. Yeah, and we'll see that explicitly in this next chapter. Yes, we will. So here we go, 6.8. So last time, as you said, the Misfit Toys met with the Undersiders and confronted Tattletale with a holographic representation of a mutilated rain. <laughs> this chapter opens with Tattletale uh, dismissing Chicken Little... Uh, Aiden from the meeting so as to protect his sensitive constitution 
This then turns into an extended discussion of potential cape names for Aiden uh, with sick burns dealt out left and right. Yeah, I think there's a, a pretty fun, lighthearted opening moment in which Wild Bo again gets to flex his writer muscles fingers fingers um as as each and every one of our characters kind of ping off each other in extremely on-brand ways like each one of these characters is is responding exactly how you think they would um it's it's a fun scene but i think it's doing a little bit more than that uh you and i use the word foil a lot in the show maybe maybe too many times um but i think that's just because comparison is such a powerful tool when discussing characters and i think it's one that wild bow is explicitly using here um we have tattletale and chicken little and victoria and kenzie two older capes uh taking care of two younger capes that have been through a lot you could say they've taken them in as their <coughs> wards but on the surface, Tattletail is drawing this comparison specifically to agitate, right? Like, you let your preteen cape look at the blood and guts thing. I'm not going to do that. Look how better I am because I'm Tattletail. Um, I think it's also notable that as much as she's doing this to try to rib Victoria, Victoria kind of stays silent during all that ribbing. And it's Kenzie that's talking back to her. And it's like, no, I can take it. I'm the one that did this, blah, blah, blah. Um, Victoria doesn't take the bait at all, which is which is great. Um, but she does. We see we see these coaching moments of Victoria where she's like, oh, I really he's his posture is bad. I want to tell him how to stand up, how to speak, how to hold himself more properly. She wants to coach him, to instruct him that that care for him. Um, and that's like a, a central part of her character, right? Yeah. You could say that she wants to take him under her wing. <laughs> Stop it. Um, so yeah, so, so I think in this attempt to, uh, differentiate the undersiders from the misfit toys, what Tattletail has actually done is kind of linked them together. They are two groups of damaged people that came together in order to help each other and survive in this world. And yes, one of them is a group of villains and the other is a group of people trying really hard to be heroes, but underneath all those labels on the underside of them they're they're just two groups of people just trying to make it in this crazy world and as part of that they're trying to take care of those around them that are the most vulnerable and we can debate the functionality of these caretaking methods all we want is it is it good for aiden to be around tattletale is it good for kenzie to be given the task of studying blood and wounds in enough detail to project it uh near perfectly on a, a projected image I don't know. And and the story doesn't seem to know for sure either yet. Um, I, I suspect that this is going to be one of the central questions that the novel is asking. If 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 the entire point of the Misfit Toys is to create a group that leans on each other and helps each other get to a better place while also doing good in the world, what is the correct way of doing that? And what is the correct way to coach a team to ensure the highest probability of physical safety and emotional bro growth? And we're drawing a we're drawing some comparisons here to show the different ways that different characters are doing that. Both the undersiders and the misfit toys and their leaders approach this idea from a different angle, but they're still approaching it, right? And and now the story has drawn this link that we can use as a way of determining this is success or failure of those different approaches. Yeah, I really like that um, that parallel between the undersiders and and the and the misfit toys here. It's it's. Uh... For one thing, I think it's underlining this question of, of, you know, should they break up? And it's like, well, I mean, 
I suppose if you think the Misfit Toys should break up, you probably also think the Undersiders should break up. And yeah, I mean, just, All just teams to be, should break up. Yeah, I mean, just to be like consistent, right? Like the, other than the aforementioned nebulous, terrible thing lurking on the horizon, we don't we don't actually see them being dysfunctional as a group. Um, and I also like this idea that yeah, like like uh, Aiden is Tattletail's ward, just as Kenzie is Victoria's ward, and yeah, mm-hmm. that's a that's a really really cool parallel there yeah the last thing i will say here before we move on is that it's very interesting that the hero's version of correct coaching and parroting seems to be like a blunt unfiltered view of what the world actually is we're not going to shield kenzie from this stuff she's going to get to see it she's going to be involved in it Um, whereas the villain wants to shield that, that reality from their ward they want to hide the true nature of the world from the person and i don't know what that means but I think it's just an interesting kind of kind of uh, comparison that you could also make that I think normally you would think in in traditional um, good versus bad dynamics, you would think the bad person would be the one that's like, yes, look at this terrible world. And the good person would be wanting to shield them from it. But it seems like it's the opposite here. Yeah, um, uh, you, you could say a lot about that, I think, because Victoria was involved in all this stuff from a young age and she probably has a bit of a skewed personal sense of yeah, that's what's true. appropriate. I mean, even like Tattletail, I don't, I don't actually remember the relative ages of when these people triggered, but, but like Victoria was in the Kate family, sort of adjacent to all this stuff, even when she was a little kid. Whereas Tattletail didn't get involved in the Cape world until she was a teenager. So true, true. Um, if anything, Victoria is the one with a more skewed view of, well, probably more accurate, but a more violent uh, view of reality. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, next, Tattletail verifies that Mama has been dealt with. Mama Mathers has been dealt with to to, uh, to Tattletail's liking. But Rain finally begins to press for an explanation of how she can know so much and yet have to let what happened to him happen, um, to, to have let innocence be put in danger. And we see that Parian and Foil are on the same page as Rain here. Yeah, this is a really great moment. And if I was directing this scene for like a TV show or a movie, I think there's a lot of cool camera cuts and movements you can do to basically show that the dynamic of the room dramatically shifts where it's not Undersider versus uh, Miss Fatoy anymore. It's kind of everybody <laughs> versus Tattletale. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, this is a book, Matt, so we can't do fun camera tricks, but you can do word tricks <laughs> because because structure matters in books. The, the way you order things matters in books. So this this whole passage starts with rain um, saying, I'd really like to hear how you know how she works, know how she keeps people under her thumb and then sign off on hurting the innocents, getting caught in the mix, doing this to me. Uh, Foil says, I'd like to hear that, too. Tattletale. Parian says, please. And the Victoria comes in echoing her words, saying, please, as well. So we start with rain, then foil, then Parian. And then we finish with Victoria echoing the words and we kind of make like a like an undersider sandwich here, Matt. There's like a misfit toy and then there's two undersiders and then there's the misfit toy again. And I think the, the, the order in which we do these things serves to kind of reinforce that sandwich kind of reinforces that that her teammates, the people that are, are supposed to be on her side on this are surrounded in the in the text by people that are on the other side. And I think that just really helps to subconsciously like drive home um, how alone Tattletale is in this thing. Right, because when we left the last chapter, Tattletale had 
you know, it, it was emphasized, in fact, that the that the undersiders outnumbered the, the the heroes three to one. But now we're seeing the text is is being, like you said, dominated um, by people who are ganging up on Tattletale, and and also just because I at least have this visual image of how this scene is laid out, um, that now Tattletale basically has the people in front of her are are being aggressive, and then the people at her back are also kind of right. uh, needling at her. And I, I, I kind of, like you mentioned, the camera movements, I kind of do like an involuntary mental camera movement where it shows these people talking, and then you kind of get a little shot of Tattletale's face as she's forced to like glance over her shoulder and realize that she's surrounded by these people and she needs to go on the defensive so yeah i, I do i do a i do a over the top point of view shot or like mm -hmm. a bird's eye shot and you see the people kind of circle around her a little bit like the people behind her step up a little and it makes a circle that's mm -hmm. what that's what i would do if i mm -hmm. was directing it <laughs> excuse me um yeah so tattletale then goes on the offense because that's her nature uh, at first she she points out how flawed her accusers are going after each of them in turn uh, including bringing up uh, Doc Mom to Sveta, who pushes back strongly. Well, at first, actually, Tattletail skips Luxie, but Kenzie is so angered by this that Tattletail is forced to also lay into her. Yeah, forced. <laughs> it's worse <laughs> if you skip me. Don't you understand that? Right. Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting thing. And there's a whole lot to unpack here. Um, I want to focus on Sveta a little bit because I loved Sveta in this moment. Um, her standing up against Tattletail's barbs is probably my favorite part of this whole scene and just the way it's written like sveta tattletale uses uses the word honey which is like dripping with sarcasm already and she takes that already weaponized word and like slings it back at her even sharper the text describes it as venom she says it with only venom there's nothing else in the words there and you can feel it right like that that word usage is just delicious and 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 that's it's really because for all her posturing, Tattletale does, as Sveta says here, go right for the jugular. She attacks her where she is most vulnerable. And Sveta's counter is perfect, Matt. Uh, she says, death happened. If I had a choice, I would have spared even her. My body was wounded. I was as freaked out as I've ever been. And someone needed to die. I've made peace with the fact that I was able to make that someone be her. And we've talked about on the show before how you can kind of revise history to suit your point before, especially when it comes to the worst parts of your past. So I was curious when I read this to to go back and refresh my memory on exactly how the death of Dr. Mother went down to see if if maybe Sveta's playing a little a little fast and loose with the truth here or 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 just be or just forgetting parts of it in order to defend herself. So I went back and looked. I went and looked, and this is from Worm uh, Venom, chapter 29.7. And I'll just read it, because I think it's important. Um, Sveta hit the ground and then unfurled. Tendrils extended up the stairs, encircling Sion. Focus on him, she said. Oh God, focus on him. It's him and me. We're the only people here. Can't, Sveta said. Sveta's tendril continued to extend, stretching out. Each one chose the doctor as the mark. Had to pick someone, Sveta whispered. Couldn't focus on him alone. I'm sorry, but you're the best choice. The tendrils found the points close to the doctor's midsection. Crushing. So, she's not lying here, Matt. She's not selective remembering the scene. She's not, she's not exaggerating the truth. Yes, she chose the doctor to die, and yes, it was convenient, as Tattletale says it is, but 
she some she had to do it. And like I think it's important to remember here that even after she specifically picks her, she still snaps Taylor's arm after this. Right. Like that's how little control she has. Um and I think this is so fitting of Svetter. She has this unending optimism, this this need to believe that things are going to get better. And as part of that, she's fully accepted her past. I did these things. I never wanted to kill these people, but I did it. I don't need to sugarcoat that. I don't need to hide it. I don't need to stretch the truth a little bit. And so to her, in order to get better, you must make peace with the past. And she feels that she's done that. And I think the question here is, have you tattletale? Yeah, yeah. I, I I also thought this moment from Sveta was was fantastic, and I, I did remember that scene very clearly. Um, and and it, it's it's sort of like a moment where Tattletale is like trying to create some some space to maneuver by going on the offensive, and as far as you can tell like miscalculates gravely by going by kind of going for the jugular with Sveta and Sveta shows a lot more steel than she usually does like you kind of know she has this in her but people don't normally treat her like this so this yeah. is this is like the most angry that we've seen Sveta as far as I can remember yeah and it's you're absolutely right that there's there's a hint of desperation to it coming from um from Tattletale. And it's, it's almost not even desperation. There's to me, and I might be reading too much into this. There's a tint of guilt in there too, where she's like, she's being accused of things and her response to that accusation is to just throw it back at them. It's like, you guys can't throw stones at me. What about the things that you did? It's, it's what about ism. That's what it, that's exactly what it is. Like, we're not talking about the things we did in the past. We're talking about this right now saying that I killed someone in the past doesn't make up for the fact of what you did right here. Yeah. And, and that, that reeks of a person pushed into a corner and, and lashing out in any way they can. Right. And she doesn't get better at this as we go. So yeah, she does explain herself though. You know, she, she relents to the extent that she does explain herself. She says she had everything arranged so that she could offer cradle something he wanted more than revenge at the last moment. And she knew the cradle would swerve from his course, but it didn't work. Someone else got the cradle. Um, amusingly, throughout this whole thing, Victoria keeps prodding her to admit that she made a mistake, which she never does in so many words. <laughs> um, but she does, uh, Tattletail does deny the assertion that grab bag capes are a blind spot to her. It's just March, apparently. Oh, good. So just more scary things about this March person that we just keep getting uh i need to make a list of scary things we know about march because it's it's getting pretty long yeah that's that's a good point we we should do a, a study on march yeah so now tattletale shares her psychoanalysis of the other cluster capes then tells them uh, what she was offering cradle a way out of the cycle and probably the full powers of the whole cluster she describes goddess or the blue woman who if you'll recall taylor tried to use in the fight against scion uh, but found her master abilities difficult to wrangle. Taylor ultimately took her by leveraging Canary's psychic power in addition to her own. Oh, right. That lady. Hooray for more scary things. <laughs> so her, her plan here is, I'm going to control the situation by helping one of them get as powerful as the lady that took over an entire world um, easily. And it's just like, like we're going to get into this as we as we discuss this more but 
I understand Tattletale's like spinning 50 plates at the same time, but some of these plans, man. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Like, she, wow. She gets she gets very confident in her ability to to do something like change someone's entire mission by just like right. saying something because you know and, and yeah she's just so confident in her power and yeah and puts so much reliance on it um, yeah it's almost it's almost an extension of of where we left her where she was we, we the tattletale we saw on worm was very confident in their power um and it got her in trouble but it, it seems like in the time between we saw her last and now she's been so successful and has like kept things relatively okay that that she's leaning on that on that more than ever and yeah it's obviously gotten her in trouble and we don't see anyone really in her corner at her back there's no there's no Gru, there's no taylor there to to tell her you know, hey, you're doing that thing where you're going down the rabbit hole, which yeah. which which she she knows is a weakness of her power, but she needs to be reminded of it. And I don't think Rachel does that for her. I I kind of don't think Imp does that for her. No, and, you know, just because it's it's possible that Imp tries to, but no one takes Imp seriously. So, yeah, um, certainly not Tattletale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've forgotten about Gru's role in that whole thing. Yeah, she does not have. She, it's very clear that she does not have that person, um, yeah. and it's getting her in trouble. Um, speaking of adding to the scary March list, Matt, <laughs> uh-huh. so now we know that there's a way that exists somehow to, um, sap the power from your cluster and become super powered. And March is a cluster and March collects cluster capes. So that's probably not going to come back at all ever in the no, story. It's not ominous. <laughs> yeah. So, so next Tattletail goes on, says, says Cradle would have owed her. And I don't know if I buy that that was her plan. Like, basically, yeah, give this violent guy four full strong powers and then he'll owe you. It's pretty thin, Tats. Like, specifically, she says her, her plan is they'd get some kind of deal where he would go work against Teacher, presumably, for a period of time to get a chance to cool off. But, like what would stop him from just taking the powers and then taking his revenge and then being like, all right, now I will go take care of teacher for you. (laughs) Right. I mean, it seems like I I don't, I I agree that I don't think her plan was ever like, I'm actually going to help this guy um, sap the powers from the rest of his cluster and become a super powerful person. I think it was literally just keep the plate spinning for as long as possible while I figure out another play. And it eventually just got to a point where she couldn't keep them all spinning, right? Like, yeah, just, she couldn't. Right. And, and yeah, that's a good point because she doesn't actually know how to do it. She just thinks it's possible. Right, right. We don't see any implication that she really fully understands how the process. Just that, hey, I know this one person that has done it. So it is a thing that we can do. Yeah. So. Right. Um, yeah. But and, and she also blames Kenzie here, right? She says, if Kenzie hadn't bricked my phone. I would have been able to get to him 30 seconds sooner and then and then everything would have worked. It's it's not it's never her fault. It's someone right. else's fault. Yeah, th- like that 30 seconds would have made a difference to whatever thing was happening under the surface <laughs> right. that she wasn't aware of. Right, right. Yeah, so um Tattletail at this point relates to them that teacher has moved in to the old cauldron offices. Oh good. It's like cauldron but more evil and shitty. This will be this will be great. So I, I think this next part is probably 
the, the best self-justification that Tattletail does where even I was kind of like, oh, okay. So yeah. she says, uh, and again, there used to be an awful lot of really fucked up parahumans, powers and, and, and power-related things that would have that would have top-tier capes moving in to relocate or destroy before those things were even a problem. Those guys aren't doing that cleanup anymore. I have taken some of that on my plate in the course of my regular business. There's a war starting sometime this week, a machine army that's literally on the horizon if you can see between worlds. Warlords, broken triggers, and yeah, the fallen are a mess under themselves. Uh, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. I think this is where Wildgo has constructed another one of these scenarios where it's really hard for me to definitively come down on a side of it. Um, because on the one hand, Tattletail is working as hard as she can, can to keep things together, to keep existence going, to ensure the continued survival of everyone. That's a really noble goal, and it will require sacrifices. You will make mistakes while doing it. And when you're playing with stakes this high, those mistakes will inevitably cost lives. The echoing beat of this entire section of the chapter is Tattletail saying over and over again, I'm tired. I'm tired. And she is. We know the price of her using her power, how much it exhausts her, how much it hurts her head. She's got to be exhausted. She's killing herself to keep these things going. No one asked her to do this. No one's demanding it of her. She's doing it because it had to be done, presumably in Taylor's name and somewhere in, in her head. And there's something really heroic about that. Yeah. Um, On I, the other hand. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, sorry, do you have something you want to say? No, no, you, you finish because I have I have tangential thoughts related to this. Yeah. Because on the other hand, the fact that your your the your end goal is noble does not make you immune from the consequences of your decisions. Tattletail has a series of shitty hands, and the consequences of not playing those hands are dire. But that doesn't mean you get off scot-free when the card you ended up playing was a really, really terrible one. It doesn't mean you didn't fuck up. You thought you handled the situation well, and you didn't. You can't wash your hands of all this stuff just because you meant well. And I think that's, that's where I land on this where like, I see your point tattletale, but it doesn't mean those things you did were okay. Right. I mean, Victoria pretty much answers her by saying, thank you, but you still haven't apologized, <laughs> which right, is, ba right. which is basically paralleling what you just said. Like, yeah, you know, great. Good on you. That that's that's good. I'm glad you're doing that. That's that's almost heroic. However, doesn't absolve the bad stuff. In, in other words, <laughs> thank you, but you really should still apologize for the bad stuff. It's, it's not a scale, you know. It, it's <laughs> right. I think that's that's a that's a theme. I haven't quite figured out like a good phrase to kind of label it, but this theme of like bad things don't balance out good things. Like that there, yeah. there's, there's not a, it's almost like a, a rebuke to utilitarianism where, where in utilitarianism, you tend to balance harm against, against benefit, and, and they, they do cancel out in the sense like, yeah, you, you torture a bunch of innocent people in cauldron experiments, uh, but it's all for the greater good. Like Victoria is like, no, no. And, and to, to the same extent, like Sveta and Ashley are they're kind of all on the same page and they're like, no, you don't, it, it's not a. It's not it's not double entry accounting. It's not a scale. You yeah. You 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 keep track of the harm you've done, and you keep track of the good things you've done, and those are two separate ledgers. Yeah, and I think, I mean, we're gonna get to this here in a second. 
I think that was the message of Worm. I think that's that's what <laughs> that's what that entire book was about. That is the conclusion of that book to me. And I think it's very important that Victoria echoes that sentiment at some point here in a sec. And I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but so we'll get there. Yeah. Well, before we move on completely from um, Tattletale's bit of self-justification, this is a very nice little uh, well-timed reminder of all of the threats that are lurking on the horizon, many of which are going to become greatly exacerbated in about a chapter. Yeah, it's interesting that like most of these threats have to do with uh, other worlds and the portals uh, yeah, between those through, worlds. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> So, yeah, uh, the two the two groups at this point sort of spontaneously break off and confer, uh, partly due to Victoria's own statement that uh, you can help the most people possible and you can still end up with horrible regrets and serious consequences. Uh, Rain decides that he's okay with letting Cradle go if it saves lives. Yep. So that's what she says here in this moment after talking to Tattletail after kind of and she's almost come to a realization here with dealing with Tattletail. And she says, I think you can help the most people possible and still end up with horrible regrets and serious consequences. Matt, that's worm. Yep. <laughs> and I want I want to talk about sequels for a bit here, because I think we're seeing something that a sequel, only a sequel can uniquely do. We're seeing the message of the first book literally passed on to its sequel. You can help the most people possible and you can still end up with horrible regrets and serious consequences. This is not an ambiguous statement that we're supposed to question. We know this is true. We've read Worm. We've right. seen Taylor. Taylor who helped save the entire universe but ended up in the story with all kinds of regrets and a lot of really serious consequences. Yep. But this is Victoria who is realizing this. Victoria, never forgive and forget Dallin. Arc 6 is arguably the end of the first big movement of Ward. Um, and in this penultimate chapter of the first big movement, we have a central character of the first story pass the lesson of that book on to the second one. She's not literally doing it. She's not. But but the conversation helps Victoria come to this realization. Yeah. Uh, and I love that so much. And I think that's what sequels can do. Sequels can take that previous thing and push it into this new one and then explore it further. It reminds me a lot, I mean, in the sense that she, it shows the growth between now and uh, the prologue when she was lecturing Madison. It, 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 I almost wish I had pulled out some quotes from the things she was saying in the prologue so I could contrast it with what she's saying here directly. Yeah, but I, I we should maybe do that in a, yeah. an episode or two because that, right. I mean, like we, we've talked about that chapter a lot so far and, and yeah. it's because it's probably one of the most important chapters in the story so far because that is Victoria's start case. That is her, that is her starting mode in this book. And every change and every obstacle she comes against is going to either support or challenge that starting belief of hers. And we're seeing here that it has been challenged and she's changed a little bit here. Yeah. And, and I think this is, this is the power of sequels. Like I said, to take the lesson from one thing and push it into the second and see where else it can go. And it, 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 we don't have to we're not just retreading the lesson of the first book, the theme of the first book, but we're exploring it further. We're taking that and we're connecting it. And I think it's great here that here at the like 
crazy bad shit is going to happen in this book from now on. Like the, the, the end of this arc has a game changing moment. And before, right before we move into that game changing moment, the, the message of the first book comes back and our main character of this one understands it, realizes it, believes it. And so now we get to see what she does with that knowledge going forward. Yeah, we get to move the move the theme forward and, and advance it. Yeah. So finally, after having this conference and deciding that uh, Rain is going to let Cradle go, the team walks over to the Undersiders, and it's obvious that Tattletale knows that Rain is going to say this uh, because she's Tattletale, and yet she tells the team that they don't have to give her Cradle. Uh, she's basically trying to mollify her own teammates, I think, primarily. Yeah, I think that's the the, the most cynical read on it all. <laughs> um, I, I'm not saying you're wrong. Maybe it's just because I like Tattletale so much. I also want to, like, I want to believe that Victoria and Tattletale sort of kind of had a meeting in the middle here, and maybe Lisa realizes on some level that she did fuck up, and she actually, the amends is not just posturing, not just for image, it's it's actually trying to make amends. Um that's that's a really subtextual read. There's nothing like explicitly in the text that says that. And maybe it's just my my wishful thinking. Yeah, yeah, it's it's possible. It's possible. Um, maybe she's. This is the closest she can come to apologizing. I hope. Yeah. I, I hope we find out. I hope we find out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So now uh, we skip some time. We skip some time here. We skip over to Brockton to uh, New Boston. New Boston. Specifically, Fenway Station, one of the transportation hubs, uh, which is a town built around a portal station. The Misfit Toys use Kenzie's abilities to peer over the area, keeping track of probable enemies. Um, and uh, there's this line, Boston wasn't a city, really. It was more of an Uber neighborhood. I just pulled that out because you have to admit that for like half a second, you were wondering how Uber got control of a whole neighborhood. Just like, just... Yeah. Not even a little sure. bit of a second. Not even sure if Uber's alive, but uh, uh, yeah, I, I think I may have thought that for a second. I don't He's know. alive. It was Leet that died, right? Leet died. I don't. I don't remember. Yeah. yeah. Look, look. I'm gonna be honest with you, Scott. I still don't remember which one of those is which. Neither do I. All right. <laughs> <laughs> and and I don't know if we ever actually correctly described, um one of their powers. I think we still get comments to this day from people listening to that episode saying, actually you described their powers wrong. Yeah. Okay. Damn it. Fine. Damn it. It's stranger nine makes it impossible to describe their powers. Yes. Yes. All right. Moving on. So Victoria thinks over her team members, keeping track of where they are psychologically doing that thing where she kind of checks in, in her own mind, thinking over them. Uh, the teammates who are currently near her, Sveta, Kinsey, Tristan, Byron, uh, all want to be heroes. Chris wants to want something out of being a hero. Rain and Ashley need to be heroes. Uh, Victoria is going through all this and planning out how she'll address everyone's needs. She'll check in with people, follow up, visit Ashley in jail if she has to. Just kind of mentally sketching out a roadmap of taking care of the team. Yeah, and we're we're moving into the end of the chapter here, and I think the writing kind of kicks into overdrive. It's really good here i like a lot of the the imaging imagery used like 
Victoria is checking through her teammates one by one. What do they want? What do they need? How do they differ? And I love how she describes Rain and Ashley. They need to be heroes in the sense that someone who is freezing to death needed to start fires. Um, I, I, I love, I love that imagery. Like it's, 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 it's constructing. Like if I'm not a hero, I am dead. And I think, I think that's such a great way of describing the two of them right now. Like, like, that's the only option I have at this point. It's mm-hmm. it's and it's wonderful. And Victoria in this moment is taking all this stuff onto her shoulders, right? Like she's listing out like, here's all these people's problems. I can fix this. I can do this. I can do that. I can help them. I can visit them. I can be with them. I can support them. I can reach out. Even if this thing fails, even if this team fails, I can reach out. So, so she's, she's not even sure if the team is going to end, but she still feels responsible to the members no matter what. And that's just, that's just the type of person she is. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, I I think especially with what comes immediately after this, I have a hard time summarizing it, but it's, it's like, basically it's, she, she, she now feels so connected to these people that they're almost going to be her team. Even, even if they're not her team, if that makes sense, like she, she she has to take care of them. She she feels yeah. obligated to take care of them yeah. now. Well, w- the one thing she doesn't say in all this is what she needs out yeah, of it. And that's, that's what we get to do next. That's true. So yeah, now she watches the hero t- the hero capes who are in the vicinity converge on the fallen as they make their first move, and she inwardly notes how it doesn't feel right to not be leaping in with them. She thinks about uh how it was like this before when she was in the patrol block always holding herself back. She thinks through, essentially gives a kind of a summary of of the story to this point and and how it and how it has felt, how her feelings about it have tracked. So first the patrol block, then the therapy team. Even that had felt somehow indistinct somehow. When I introduced the topic of being heroes, hadn't I talked about the kinds of heroes, the ways money came in? We'd started to do that, but indistinctly, heroes were ideological or they were about money. They could be heroes for a cause or a specific mission. Indistinct because we've been a mix of heroes at heart, heroes to serve ends and those who needed to be heroes but who at the time weren't. Luxie was struggling with saying goodbye to people. I was telling myself I could keep the people, but I struggled with saying goodbye to the idea. Um, so yeah, it, it, it means something different to each of them that the loss of the team would be a loss of some important part of identity, and she admits that it would be the loss of the the part of her identity where she gets to be a hero. Yeah, that's what, up until this point it was all about what each of them wanted and needed and mm-hmm. how she could assist them with it. It was all about them. If the team ended, they would be in rough shape and I needed help. But here she turns that inward. She she admits that she would maybe be too. And and look at what she's saying here. At the start of the story, Victoria was holding back, standing back, not living up to her true potential. Largely out of fear, fear of herself, fear of the wretch, fear of her past. And the community center attack forced her out of that status quo. That was that was her inciting incident. It forced her out of that. She was outed and it changed her and she decided, okay, fine to survive in this world. I need to be me. It's not going to work any other way. So she was. And she got rejected. No, no team wanted her. This world didn't really have a place in it for me if I really wanted to be me. And then she finds these kids. 
a group of people that not only had a place for her, but needed her. They they not only wanted her, they needed her. The death of the Misfit Toys as a group is not just a failure. It's not just the this the death of the idea of collective recovery. It's a loss for Victoria of the one place where she feels like she belongs. And she's admitting that here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's I, I think this is not going to be as easy for her to let go as she wants to think. I mean, in here she's admitting that it's not. So perhaps I'm not being fair to her. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so in in this fight, it seems like a group of fallen are slipping out of pocket. So Sveta and Victoria go to deal with them. So just just so we're clear, the idea of them like backing off and like just setting up the fight and letting everyone else actually fight that lasted all of five minutes right that's 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 the thing that was the most striking out of all of this was that not you know six paragraphs ago she was thinking like uh, I, I i didn't like how this felt it reminded me of back when i was on the patrol block but you know you gotta sometimes you have to hold yourself back and then like okay you know what <laughs> you know what enough of this enough of this foolishness Sveta, let's go get him. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, and, and that's something that people in the in the comments discussed. Actually, this idea that um, they can't actually restrain themselves, like that they 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 they, they, they plan things, they say they're going to do this, and then they just end up getting into a fist fight again. Right, and I think Victoria actually uh, cops to this in the next chapter too, where she's like, "How could you be a hero and stand back when people are getting hurt? Right, that you just you could not be a hero that way." And mm-hmm. it's like, well, yeah, then stop making your plan to do that. Right. right. Just just admit your nature. Uh, so, yeah, they they head down to fight these guys. One of the fallen guys is not dressed like the others. Turns out it's a Crowley brother. And it turns out later we find out it's, it's Vince, the middle brother. Victoria wrecks a few of the mooks, uh, but <laughs> Vince proves harder to deal with. He projects ghostly distorted images from nearby people and objects, which he then controls. They have some substance on their own, but they're harder to deal with when overlapped. It's a pretty cool, versatile power. Yeah, and it's a pretty fun action scene, I think. I, I like this a lot. Yeah, I like how she conceptualizes his power as like a particular implementation of force fields, and she has a lot of experience with force fields. So she decides that she can take him with one hand in a particularly badass moment. She <laughs> slams into the ground hard enough to crack it. Oh, hello, glory girl. Um <laughs> That has to be a specific like callback, right? Yeah, no, I think so. Um, And then she uses the stumble this creates to slip in under his defensive field and put him in check. He says he'll surrender as long as the good guys give them a seat at uh, at the uh, at the show to enjoy this show. And he says it's gonna be a hell of a thing. Dun dun dun. (laughs) Cliffhanger. Um, every time we get to like a big cliffhanger, I tend to want to rehash my entire conversation about cliffhangers. But I think, so I think we've talked about it enough on the show to where people know why I don't like cliffhangers. And I do like things I call game changers. And, um, this falls into the latter category and therefore it works. Yeah, I agree. So this is a great one. It, it was mm-hmm. perfect. So, not to leave people hanging, moving on into 6.9, the last chapter of this arc. And it opens up with uh, Victoria saying, uh, Look-see, I said, are you there? Always came the reply. It's like the only person in the world 
who could say something like this thing and, uh, and and mean it as literally as possible. Yeah. Also, it's just wonderfully creepy that yeah. it's like, of course, of course, of course she is. L- literally always. Yeah, right. Like you could be lying in bed with no no auditory device near you and say, look, see, are you there? And you would hear, <laughs> you would hear yeah. always. Where's that coming from? Yeah, right. So the toys quickly move to respond to this new vague threat. Victoria has to explain the context to the extent that the threat is deemed credible by the others, um, except Chris, who injects some of his aged wisdom. Uh, and then they start contacting the wardens. Aged wisdom, mm. huh? Yeah, Chris says, I've met some pretty shitty people over the years. Mm-hmm. What kind of 11-year-old says over the years? Well, He's like 40, Matt. Confirmed. It's confirmed. You know... It's- Getting looked that way. I, 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 I admit I admit that I might have been the kind of 11-year-old who would use a phrase like that, but I take your point. I mean, the problem is now that I have this theory is ev- the, all the evidence just goes to support it. Yeah. Because, I mean, it's all interpretation, right? So, right. yeah, he could literally just be saying, yeah, I've I've had a rough life. Yeah. My 11 years have been pretty rough. Yeah, right. It, it's true. Uh, there's one moment in here that I wanted to talk to you a bit because it jumped out at me in my reading. Um, Victoria says the Crowley brother still had his hands up in surrender. It didn't really mean a lot. A lot of the time. There was no position or way of being that would make a parahuman a non-threat. This really struck me when I was reading it. Um, we, we've talked a lot on the podcast about the idea of taking life and what it can do to a person, even if the life you are taking deserves it. But I think this go- goes to show you like how different these interactions are when you're talking about capes. Because like in our world, if a cop shoots an unarmed kid with their hands up, people get get furious because clearly they were in a they were in a non-threatening, non-hostile position. But with capes, like putting your hands up could just be how you activate your power. Right. So like there's there's no way to actually be safe. And I think I think the, the the this world and the stories has has validated this again and again. Like Taylor surrendered in Worm and no <laughs> and like so I'm not I'm not saying here that we should just go around killing everyone that surrenders if you're a cape because we don't know if you're a threat or not, but I think it just illustrates how tough the dynamics in this world are, how how unsecure everything is. You can never really know if someone has really surrendered or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good point. Yeah, I like that line too. <laughs> so here uh, Victoria thinks over what she knows of Vince Crowley, uh, how he, he and his sister Sabrina worked together to coordinate the trade of family members between clans, and uh, which basically just gives us some background flavor about the Crowleys specifically and this guy Vince and, and his sister who we'll meet soon. Uh, Luxie looks back over her surveillance records of the hollow point phones and it's clear from the reactions of the captured Crowleys that this is the right track for investigation. Yeah, and that was a that was a cool little beat there when like she's reading like saying things just to have them hear him hear right. it so she can judge their reactions. It's a little clever thing there, Victoria. Yeah, I enjoyed that bit. Uh, and next uh, team anime arrives, uh, the Boston Heroes <laughs> starring Magic Knight Crash Mystic Magic Impaler, and Dynamite Warrior Dash Fantastic. Uh, Victoria's assessment of their outfits is just absolutely devastating. (laughs) 
and then she says, "I." <laughs> so I. <laughs> I'd, I'd secretly hope they flake out like they'd been known to in past crises, even at the same time I'd known we needed all the assistance we could get. Ugh. <laughs> Which, I am happy. I'm happy to see Matt that Victoria hates anime just as much as I do. She um, I think this is the the, the most the most use in an UG of any of any <laughs> UG in in the history of the bare humans world. That is true. That's a lot of use. Um, These guys are fun, though. I enjoy them. Um, This is a very tense chapter. We've had this thing dropped at the end of last chapter, uh, this bomb that is going to go off. Uh, I'm speaking of a metaphorical bomb. We learn later it's a a literal bomb. Um, But this is this is our climax, and it's very tense. And. I, I think a little bit of tension relief is welcome in moments like this. Yeah, a little bit of a little bit of joking characters um, just just for some fun to kind of cut the tension a little bit. I think it works here. Um, and especially the part where she just the savage takedown of their outfits, Matt. It was so good. Yeah, <laughs> so good. I, I agree. It's very interesting. Um, you know, I almost wish you could do the experiment of like, what would this chapter feel like without without this bit? Because you're right that it breaks the tension a little bit, but also somehow doesn't. Like this chapter still feels extremely, extremely tense and just just ratcheting up and up and up. And and I mean, we're gonna keep going through it. But uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I think it was I think it was a well chosen little placement for this. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, there's the fact that they're only they're only vaguely lighthearted because like they're sort of also like murderous. <laughs> so it's not it's not like it's all good. Um yeah, Tattletale says they're trustworthy trustworthy though. Oh good, Tattletale. Um and with the five hit drill punch combo, Mystic Magic Impaler announced floating off the ground, she stabbed at the air with her drills. Fucking why was this a thing? I felt embarrassed and it wasn't even me saying it. I agree. Why why is this a thing? <laughs> I, I do think the reason why these guys work is because they are used very sparingly, right? They come in, there's some jokiness, there's some there's some tension relief about how ridiculous they are, and then almost some jokiness about how ridiculous they are, yet deadly. Uh-huh. Um, and then they just kind of move out of the way. I think I think it would get very old very quickly if these guys like hung around for the entire chapter, but they don't really do that. They serve their purpose and they get out of there, and that's why it works. Yep. And because you said that, Parahumans 3 is going to be about Mystic Magic Impaler. Thanks, of course, Scott. of course. Yep. Guys, uh, I, it's okay. I'm not making fun of you for liking anime. Don't get upset with me. <laughs> I just don't like it. It's fine. <laughs> uh, yeah, so Vince finally clarifies that he'll only surrender if he gets a view of the horizon, which is just wonderfully ominous. Yeah, so it's it, it, like I think that's the tension ratcheting up is, is we get hint after hint about what's going on. And anytime any of our characters make progress into understanding where this thing is or what's going to happen, we also have Vince kind of swoop in to like show how confident he is that it doesn't even matter. You've already lost. So it's like, it's just like he is utterly convinced that, that things are over that like, he's just kind of gloating at this point. Right. Yeah. So, Team anime makes sure it's cool if they kill Vince if he fights back. 
And then Victoria heads off with Sveta to join the others at Fenway Station Station, which is the likely target that Kinsey has pinpointed. Um, and here's that, that moment that you were referring to. The idea had been to stay clear of the fight, but I couldn't imagine someone calling themselves a hero with a straight face and not wanting to help those in need, or needing to support those who were wanting to help, maybe. The lies we told ourselves when need trumped reason. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad that she's at least acknowledging, like, the lies, right? That she's acknowledging that, hey, um, we were just lying to ourselves when we said we were going to be able to stay out of this thing. Like, mm-hmm. it's impossible. There's no way. Yeah. Yeah. It it very kind of tangentially reminds me of when Taylor would, like, um, do something terrible and then, like, think about it and then try to kind of justify it to herself and turn it around in her head a couple different ways. And then, yeah. and then if she wasn't really happy with her self-justification, then she would just, like, not think about it anymore. Right. It's kind of what's happening here because she's... She's like, yeah, I am doing the opposite of the thing that I said I would do. I definitely am lying about that. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> I think that the, the key to me with this is now that she has very clearly acknowledged this fact, are they going to keep doing that? Is like the next time they have a plan, is Victoria going to be like, well, we'll just stay back and help coordinate. Then that's when I'd facepalm. But it, hopefully this represents... Um, I have learned now and I will not construct my plans around this idea or I will not justify my involvement in this thing as I'm not going to be directly involved. We'll see. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. So there's a, there's a tiny beat here that I wanted to bring up because as they approach Capricorn, who's fighting the fallen, um, it's, it's points out that Sveta went straight to Capricorn. I went straight to the fallen and I think this like purposely de- perfectly demonstrates how these two people are both very similar, but very different. Sveta goes right on defense. She's going to help defend her teammate. Victoria goes right on offense. Their end goal is the same. Help out Capricorn, defeat the Fallen, stop the attack. But how they approach that is fundamentally different. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really cool two sentence beat that illustrates that. Yeah, I agree. I love that. Uh, yeah, so now Victoria gets some payback, I guess, that's been subconsciously simmering for several arcs. She nails the fallen guy who was teleporting people in back during her failed interview with the attendant. Yeah, she fucking wrecks him. Yeah. She, like, like dives and knees him in the face. Yeah. Uh, but she doesn't use the wretch here. She specifically pulls it back. And I think that's interesting because throughout the fallen fight so far, like, especially in this arc, we've seen her, like, use the wretch more and more. Um, unfurl it and use it when she needed to more and more throughout these chapters. And I wonder, I wonder if she is like aware that things are a little personal with this guy, that she remembers him and, and therefore like holds back because she's like aware that this is personal and feels like if she brought out the wretch when this is personal, that would definitely, definitely be too far. So she kind of holds back on that. I wonder. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, maybe she just wanted the satisfaction of meeting this guy in the face, too. That that could be, too. Yeah, yeah like you said, personal. <laughs> um, yeah, so Sveta saves Victoria from getting immolated by a Molotov cocktail. Which is great, but as she's about to get hit by the Molotov, she goes back into memory mode, mm-hmm. and she remembers uh, getting 
sprayed by crawler poison. Mm-hmm. And then she starts lashing out in her head. Idiots. The word flashed through my mind, aimed at the fallen members of the clans. Idiot. The word flashed through my mind, the singular reserved for myself. Um, not only do I enjoy this writing a lot, how Victoria focuses, like specifically draws the, it, it, that there's that echo. Um, there's specific echo in these lines and she specifically points out the singular and the plural, um, to, to make sure that this is about her realizing it for herself. Um, I think, I think this is just, this is just classic Victoria that whenever she gets frustrated, her, her method is mad at those people and then mad at myself. Mm -hmm. And that's just kind of what she does. Yeah, no, I, I like that. That's a great um example of that i feel like that does happen a lot I'll pay, I'll pay more attention to that going forward yeah so she she helps to put down this mob of fallen and she thinks that she might see victor from brockton bay who uh was the empire 88 member who could steal skills from other people um, i'm not sure what the significance of that is but maybe we'll hear more about that yeah, just good to draw out because she she almost goes to to stop him. She yeah. almost like chases after him. It's like, I remember this guy. I'm going to get him. Um, and then uh, she realizes her teammates need help and she prioritizes that. Um, there's a cool moment here where uh, they meet up to discuss the saving by grabbing the Molotov. And she just says, thank you. And Sveta says, of course, or something. And she says, there was no need to ask what it was. She got it. That, this, I liked it. It would be nice to do the hero thing with her, even sometimes, even if the team fell through. We're in this moment, Matt, of really high tension. Something bad is going to happen. We don't know what yet. We don't know if our heroes are going to be able to stop it. And in this moment, there's a beat of Victoria feeling contentment. And it's not it's not that she doesn't care about the situation at hand. I'm not trying to say that, but... But it's just because in the midst of all this insecurity that was echoed in in a lot of the last chapters, she feels like this is right. She's got clarity. We know who the bad guys are. We know who the good good guys are. Fighting the bad guys, teaming up with the good guys. This is what she wants. This is the the clarity and the simpleness that she wants. And there's a moment before that that is echoed when this when she says earlier in this chapter there that was satisfying in a way i couldn't put my finger on it i couldn't even stop to contemplate it this was when right right after she need uh fallen dude in the face and watched all the people around him go into chaos it was satisfying the last couple of chapters have been filled with insecurity victoria is dealing with tattletale with with the idea of 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 doing the the thing that's best for everyone and the thing that gives you the least amount of regret might not be the same thing. Who is a good guy? Who is a bad guy? What is the status of my team? Are we done for? What does all this mean? What am I going to have to do to make sure all these people are okay? All these questions are swirling through her head. And in the midst of this battle, all that fades away. There's just bad guys and good guys. Fallen and Sveta. Take out the bad one. Team up with the good one. It's simple. And it feels feels pretty good for her yeah um i i i can't help but think at this point about how her behavior must look from the outside because she just continually throws herself into these brawls and takes quite a bit of risk she gets shot she almost gets hit with a molotov cocktail and it does make me wonder what 
Sveta, for example, is thinking about Victoria's mental state. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I, I don't know. I don't yeah, know. I just something just kind of occurred to me just now. Um, yeah. So, so as the team heads into the station, Capricorn points out that they could have gone in without him, but Victoria understands that she is exhausted and she wants more tools at her disposal, both in terms of powers and also mental faculties. She wants, in her words, more of a team. Meanwhile, Chris has eaten his phone. <laughs> I, that's changed, though, right? Um, back in the early parts of this arc, she went out on her own, got shot, and just kind of kept charging through on her own. Here, after acknowledging how good it felt to have Sveta at her back to, to team up with her, she realizes that this team thing is more than just being needed. It's something she needs. Mm-hmm. And... I think that's a great moment of growth here circling to the end of end of this this whole arc. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know what to say about Chris eating his phone other than dear god <laughs> and um I, it's insane. This this kid I I need to learn everything about him. Yeah. Yeah, we don't find out what was up with that either. No, not yet. <laughs> So yeah, Victoria now calls Gilpatrick just to enlist all the coordination she can muster. Um, on her way into the station, the team is held up by some very tough professional patrol block kids, teenagers armed with handguns. Interestingly, it's Capricorn's presence that gets them through the quickly. The, the patrol block woman recognizes him as someone doing hero work in Hollow Point, but she doesn't recognize Victoria. And uh, I really wonder what to make of that. Yeah, I read it a few times to see if I was if I was missing some beats that were being thrown down. And, and there's it, there's nothing completely clear here. My guess would be um, Tristan Capricorn has kind of been the de facto leader of the team, right? I think Victoria has coached and helped out, but it's always kind of uh, been from behind the scenes kind of she's not been the upfront leader and maybe it's just like that kind of his kind of more outspoken leadership has gotten more attention around the area more people have noticed um i i don't know it could also know. be the costume like she's she keeps changing her costume she's only recently that's true started yeah. using the battle angel thing i get that just occurred to me that's fairly likely because you're if unless you know you, you generally pay more attention to costumes i think so yeah yeah um, so yeah, 10 minutes later, Luxie has arrived in person and they coordinate their strike on the Crowleys sitting in the restaurant. Um, there's a small beat here emphasizing that Tattletail is being snappish at Kinsey, which Kinsey interprets as Tattletail disliking her. But I have to wonder if, um, Tattletail is not just having a power overuse headache, headache at this point. Yeah. Yeah. I think to Kinsey, any evidence that a person doesn't want to spend every waking moment with you is evidence that they don't like you very much. So, uh, I, I'm willing to bet Tattletail like isn't part of the Kenzie fan club, yeah. but I I mean you're you're we saw last chapter how tired she was. She was being upfront with how tired she was, and she's she's using her power like crazy right now. So I'm I'm sure you're right that she's like feeling really rough right now. Mm-hmm. She's probably not doing very well. Yeah, right. She probably just just objectively knows better than to get involved with Kenzie. <laughs> yeah, that too. <laughs> um, so we get this description of the area the uh the restaurant two women and six men at two separate tables no costumes the restaurant was emptying 
There was one, one member of the staff walking around cleaning tables, maybe a manager, keeping up the facade. Heroes came in all forms. Um, and I, I don't know why exactly I like that so much, but this idea of of just like a mundane person who understands that there's an emergency and there's some probably terrorist situation and they're staying behind just looking busy so that the terrorists stay in place. And I don't know, like that, that gets to me for some reason, because that's the kind of thing that happens in real life. And you hear about like some, some heroic person just putting themselves at risk because they understand that they need to. And I don't know that, that one bit got to me. Yeah. And it's, um, I mean, coming from a, a cape, I think it matters even more because mm-hmm. like there's, there's a very rear real threat that like, the capes, the parahumans differentiate themselves so much from the regular people that they lose sight over who these people are. So this this quick acknowledgement of a different form of heroism is certainly encouraging in this in this world where there's seemingly going to be a big conflict between these two sides. Yeah, right. Uh, so at this point, Tattletail finally reaches out and contacts everyone, confirming that this is an attack on every station uh, every every portal station using hidden tinker devices. Yeah, I think this is one of the first moments where I audibly said, oh shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I love the slow burn of, of how this tactical strike is set up. First, they're getting all the information passed around, getting everyone on the same page. Uh, Sveta takes dibs on making the first move, and then it all pops off at once. Yeah, and it's executed so well. We we get to see their, once again, we can see their teamwork, their communication. Sveta wants to go first. Everyone else just allows it and adapts the plan based on it. We we line up, we plan, and we execute, and it works perfectly. And it's, it's hard not to go back and compare this to their first scrimmage when things were like a mess and they weren't communicating. Like, like we said a few times earlier, this team has really gelled and, and come together. Um, they're communicating... They, they seem to know each other and know what each one wants to do and, and adjust based on that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's really cool. Yeah, right. Like the, the, the synergy and just like quickness is expressed really well here. It wasn't yeah. a pretty fight. It wasn't even an exciting fight. It was a trap closing where I was the jaws of the mousetrap slamming down. Capricorn was the pitfall and the bucket of water they were unceremoniously forced to deal with. Sveta was the snare. Um, and j- just comparing all of them to like aspects of a trap, I think is awesome. Yeah. Also, yeah. Um, bears mentioning in the midst of this, one of the good guys shoots Sabrina, the, uh, um, the Crowley sister with the, with a gun. So that's just kind of thrown into the, to the mix there. Yeah. There's also a small beat when Sveta grabs the, uh, the bag that has the bomb in it and yanks it out there. It like smashes a guy's face, yeah. And with like to to draw blood, yeah. So we we know how we know how important it is for Sveta not to hurt people mm-hmm. as much as possible. So um, there's no time to really react to that now. But I feel like that's something Sveta is going to be upset with herself over later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. I do like you're right that the the who is the different parts of the of the the trap. Um, Victoria calling herself the jaws of the mouse trap. I think it's like. There, there's a lot of tendency to like look at Victoria and be like, oh, man, it worries me sometimes that she's so brutal. But but brutality is kind of her power. Like that's like there's not that that's that's what she's got. She even says it earlier in the thing when she's like, look, I hit things. That's what I do. Yeah. Um, I, I need other people for this thing. And um, so like 
part of me says, oh, wow, you're like describing yourself as a Jaws in the mousetrap. Does that mean something about you? And I was like, well, no, that's just like what her power set is. Right. Yeah. I wasn't trying to be hard on her when I like accused her of always right. getting into brawls. That's just she, she's a flying brick package. So yeah, that's yeah, it's going to happen. But uh, the, the writing here, Matt, is so good. The passage you just read, I, I like that through the middle of this, we take time to kind of like pause things and have Victoria describe the setting. It says a restaurant with red, white and black tile, black booths and pretty looking tables. It was cold on the one side because the windows were open and noticeably warm on the other because heat radiated from the kitchen. Now, why does this matter? (laughs) Why does it matter what color the tile of the restaurant? Why does it matter that one side is cold while the other is hot? Is it just some flavor text so we know what the restaurant looks like? I mean, yeah, but it's also more than that. We're seeing like dichotomies, right? We're seeing hot and cold, red, black and white. These these different uh, these two teams are meeting we're about to end the arc where things are going to get a whole lot darker and we're like specifically in the setting drawing differences between one side and the other and i think that's just a really cool way of of painting that picture yeah that's funny because until you pointed out to that there could be a meaning to it i didn't pay much attention but yeah there's two clear dichotomies of of black and white and then red which you know you could say that's like good and bad and then blood in the middle so um that's pretty cool pretty cool to think about um, and then of course you know they win this fight they win it pretty handily uh but there's no release of tension really they have to wait for news from the other locations the other portals and they send texts checking if loved ones are okay and then some loved ones take forever to respond like weld and it turns out a heart attack yeah i know i i that was totally on on the hook for that um and then it turns out that some of the attacks were successful uh, but the fallen aren't closing off the portals, which is what they were afraid of. They are opening them wider and taller. And then we realize all these these threats that we were just reminded of recently, the machine army, the goblin horde, earth sea, goddess, all their problems are about to get a lot worse. Yeah. Remember how we like barely had all these things under control? <laughs> now we've lost all that mm-hmm. control. And we have to think back now. The misfit toys were in bad shape when they started this part of the operation out they were on the verge of collapse at least one of them is probably going to jail the rest of them are like severely messed up and all sveta wanted was one last run one last chance of success so we can finish this thing on a positive note and they win Mm -hmm. like they they accomplish their objective they team up with local forces they negotiate a way to get tattletale's help they swoop in they get the bomb they beat up the bad guys they stop it from happening here Mm -hmm. and yet a bad thing still happens the worst thing and like i've said a couple times already this this serves as the end of that i in my mind the end of like the first big story movement of ward the piece is over um you you could say that you could argue that they might have been able to recover from the fallen battle like if they had just cleaned that up things might have returned to a tenuous status quo but this no way Mm mm-hmm and our characters are in the middle of it, hurt, battered, desperate for that one last win before the consequences come up to them. And even if they do win, it doesn't seem to matter here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think they, no one would have known that this is going to happen. There, it would have been much worse without their effort. So, so they definitely, they definitely stopped it from being as bad as it could have been. But yeah, in in the end, um, 
we don't we don't know how bad it is as this chapter ends really we just know that it's that that you it's know some balls were dropped and uh and the one person that they all have in common isn't picking up her phone oh yeah that too yeah yamada's dead or, or presumed dead something, yeah yeah i had i had a guy respond to my tweet i don't i'm sorry i don't remember who you were that said the first rule of worm was to not assume someone was dead until we saw the body but how i mean does that happen in Worm a lot? I mean, I, Taylor and her dad, that's all I could think of. In fact, it's the opposite. It's like, even if someone says they're alive, they assume they're dead. Yeah. It's Brian. Yeah. I mean, we never saw Coyle's body. Yeah. Still, definitely still alive. Taylor was blind. That's <laughs> 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 a bad joke. Yep. Um, sure was. <laughs> but I think this is this is so... This is so big. Um, there, like, I w- I found this shocking, and I was saddened and shocked because I love Yamada as a character. Um, but the more I thought about it, the more it just made it. It just made perfect narrative sense. And I think there's a version of the story where you could believe that, like, the next thing the Misfit Toys do after all the things that happened to them was like. Okay, we need another group therapy session. Let's gather us all back. Let's have Yamada go over us again. Let's have her talk us down, talk about what we learned um, from this experience, what what we need to do better, how we can improve ourselves, how we can keep our healing and our recovery. But the story robs us of that. Because it has to. Because Yamada, the wise mentor figure for for our characters, has to go away. Because now as we push into the next movement of the story, we need to remove that wise mentor from the equation. Yamada's great, but at the end of the day, she's a crutch. If Ward is about recovery, then sooner or later, our characters will need to learn how to do that without always leaning back on her. Mm-hmm. And, and sure, this is probably not the best time for that. They're probably not ready for that. But... That's what creates drama and conflict, right? It's being forced into a situation when you're not ready for it. With Yamada gone, the Misfit Toys are forced to truly rely on each other. They don't have anyone else now, just each other. Not just to protect each other, not just to shield each other from outside criticisms, as we've seen them do again and again, but to earnestly, honestly, and pragmatically be there for each other. And this is why, as I hinted at the beginning of the book, or the the, the episode this week, this is why I believe they have to stay together now because all they have is each other and they, they need that right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think at this point I hope they stay together, but I don't get a vote. Do I? No, you don't. You don't. Um, so that's the end of arc six. Yeah. That's the end of arc six. Um, I think you had some, we, we both, probably had some some overall thoughts about arc six to to dig into yeah i had a lot of fun going back and rereading this one and so i wrote a whole page (laughs) and feel free to interject in my rambling whenever you want will do um so we mentioned a couple times over the course of this episode that arc six pitch could be seen as kind of a fulcrum a pivot point for the rest of the story Ward started off on a tinge of hope, hope for the future, hope for our characters, a new day, a new opportunity. And over the course of the previous five arcs, that hope was 
challenged. The darkness threatened to consume the light once again. And our characters have fought back against that darkness, both internally and externally. Even as that daybreak that we started with turned to shade and then to shadow, and as that shadow turned to pitch black, our characters, like the world around them, battled against that darkness. And like we said, last arc summary in arc 5 shadow, we saw them fail. And here we are now in arc 6, witnessing the consequences of that failure. And not to be too dour, but, but like we said, this is a fundamental shift in the life of the entire world and in the life of our characters. We, the, the events, in, in all great writing, you make the event personal and impactful. So we have this game change with the portals opening, and that's the change for the entire world. But it comes personal to our characters when we throw Yamada into the mix there. And so, so they're in a whole lot of, whole lot of trouble here, Matt. Mm-hmm. Yep. So this o- this arc opens in media res. Um, the whole team is reeling after reeling from the events of the speedrunner suddenly betraying them and and going to the side of the fallen. And we thought the battle was over. Now we thought the battle was completely over, and now it's worse than ever before. And nobody knows what to do. Capricorn feels overwhelmed. Victoria feels powerless. Feta is is angry and sad. Rain just fucking killed a guy. And they rally here. They meet up with an unexpected ally in the Undersiders, a fact which Victoria is very uncomfortable with at first. But then Imp helps Victoria, and, and Victoria helps Bitch. And by the end of the arc, not only does Victoria work with Tattletail, but she maybe starts to understand her a little bit, too. In the final chapter of Glowworm, the one we talked about earlier, Victoria triumphantly declares to Madison that I don't believe in forgive and forget. But the events of Ward have challenged that rigid stance on forgiveness. As we've said, the big threes of Victoria's former trauma are Tattletale, Carol, and Amy. And as we shift into the next section of the book, it seems like Victoria might have learned how to forgive one of them. Two to go? Yeah, and and she's made progress on... On, on the other, in fact, I would even say she's she's made in like a relative sense. She's made more progress with Amy than she has with Carol because she's still super irritated with Carol just as much as she was before. But now she yeah. can at least like think Amy's name and contemplate the abstract possibility of trying to get healing from her. You know, in in a dire circumstance. Yeah, and there was the beat we skipped over, which was. Um, she texted her mom to make sure she was okay. Mm-hmm. And she gets a response back that says, yeah, I'm fine. Amy is too. Uh-huh. And she says, she, she also told me Amy was okay too. I let her. Yeah. And that's a pretty big deal. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and she doesn't say how she feels about that, but no, but like, th- that's really interesting. Like I, the book, you know, didn't go this direction, but like, I think it would have messed Victoria up a little bit if, if, if it were like, oh yeah, Amy's Amy's dead now. You never got yeah. to, you never got any actual closure with her. You never got to, to even, you never even got to 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 talk to her and and or, or like, you know, tell her off. Much less have a any kind of resolution, any kind of positive resolution. Yeah. Um, but no, that's not that's not what happened. I'm just, it was just an interesting tan, you know, mental tangent to think about. Like, yeah, what what. uh does she realize does she realize that that she might not be overjoyed with the idea of Amy dying spontaneously? 
Yeah. Yeah. So <clears throat> as much as our, our characters have progressed, we, we they definitely have. They've got a long road ahead of them. For Earth Gimmel, the safety of the world centered on this idea of strict control of the interdimensional portals. For the Misfit Toys, it was their therapist, always there to fall back on if things got really rough. Those are those are gone now. The peace is over, and the dream of a brighter tomorrow than was yesterday might be over too. Mm-hmm. But is it? Because I think the other thing we see in Arc 6 is our team come together. Our team work together like they have never before. Victoria begins the arc so desperate to do something that she goes out on her own and gets shot. She ends the arc waiting for Capricorn because she feels like they're more useful and better as a team. Mm-hmm. And they are. I, I don't think it's a coincidence that the first, the next arc, the first arc in, in what I'm calling the next movement of the story is called Torch. Mm-hmm. A torch is a light source, one that can pierce the darkness, but is a different light source from the others we've seen in the arc titles before. Those came from the sun, an external power source. Torches are man-made. Torches come from us. The first part of the story seems to suggest that if you just turn away from the past and hope that the light of the new day will solve your problems, you will fail. Mm-hmm. But maybe we can see our characters be able to summon that light from within them. And that will be how you recover. That will be how you push back the darkness, not rely on that external source, not rely on that thing, but rely on yourself. Yeah. And torch can also be a verb, which implies a more active role. Sure. Yeah. That's cool. I like it. All right. That's arc six. I loved it. I loved arc six. It's great. A lot of people. So one of the things that people are doing, Matt, before we wrap up, uh, people are doing a lot of worm comparison. Like, when is when is the Leviathan moment of Ward going to happen? And it, it's it's really incomparable because, like, Leviathan was a game changer in the scope of the world. Like, we didn't realize how big this thing was. And I think... Like, obviously, from a pure, like, spectacle and action standpoint, this moment is not the same. But I think this is a game changer for the status quo of the world in a in a similar way to the way that Leviathan was. Yeah. So, yeah, I I agree, because we we spent the whole story up until this last arc setting up the status quo and saying this is this is what's happening now. And yeah, it's not it's not a stable status quo. We've got the fallen going crazy. We've got all kinds of bad stuff happening. But it we, we're operating within these certain parameters, and and then, bam, parameters are different now. So yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, all right. So that was that was the end of arc six pitch. Uh, let's do let's do some name the game, Scott. Let's get into a right. deep and 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 detailed philosophical analysis of uh, Magic Knight Crash. Okay, go go for it, Matt. I think he's um. I think that he thinks he's like a magical knight and crashes into things, possibly. I think you're probably right. Okay, all right. Uh, so moving on to the discussion questions uh, for this week. Do you think Wildbo successfully manages to hold tension across entire chapters like he does? Uh, sorry, let me start that over. How, yeah, you messed that up big time. Let me just rewind. 
how do you think Wildbo successfully manages to hold tension across entire chapters like he does in 6.9? Do tonally incongruent characters like the anime squad hurt or help this? Yeah, talk to us about writing, guys. Yeah, yeah, we're t- we, learn we, us. We've we've solved morality, like that's clear. <laughs> yeah, obviously, because yeah, all of our threads are just very calm, and, and everyone agrees with each other all the time about morality. There's no mm-hmm. there's no real discussion to be had there. It seems seems pretty well settled. Clearly, yeah, everyone's got everyone's very much on the same page with respect to that. <laughs> um, so let's. Let's do something more interesting and possibly divisive by talking about writing and right. craft. And uh, that's all we've got for you this week on We've Got Ward. You guys are all part of this show, so feel free to provide us with advice, questions, or thoughts on this week's reading. You can reach out to us via email at gotwormpod at gmail.com or on Twitter at gotwormpod. My personal Twitter is at scottdaily85 and Matt's is at mordenatorch. Yep. If you're not already subscribed to We've Got Ward, we strongly recommend you do so and never miss an episode. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere else in the world you can listen to podcasts. As always, you can find this, all the other podcasts we do, and all of our writing, essays, film, and TV criticisms, and more at dailyplanetfilms.com. This week, the Daily Planet podcast explored the first 121 episodes, strips, uh, pages, something of The Order of the Stick. The show was produced by our patron, Kevin, for donating at the Kryptonian level. Thanks. Thanks, Kevin. That's Thank right. You. That's right. Yeah, thanks, Kevin. Uh, that, and that's right. If you like any of these shows and want to support them, consider donating to our Patreon account, patreon.com slash dailyplanetfilms. You know, I always forget. You can also just go to uh, dailyplanetfilms.com slash uh, donate, I believe. Oh, yeah. Or s- maybe we should just do that. Yeah. Or maybe it's slash support. You know what? I should figure okay, that well. out. Um, and, and <laughs> Please then, just, just go to Patreon yeah, for now until yeah. we figure this out. Unless you want to do- donate Bitcoin. Uh, but yeah, you can donate a dollar a month or whatever else you can afford. Uh, supporting us on Patreon gives you tons of great bonuses like voting in our quarterly fan art contests, Q&A sessions, access to live streams of our recording sessions, and our excellent Discord chat. Uh, special thanks to New Planeteers, uh, Niels at the $1 level. And that's it, apparently. So uh, thanks a lot, Niels. <laughs> uh, and as always, make sure you go over to Wildbo's Patreon, patreon.com slash Wildbo, and donate to him as well. This is his world. We're just playing in it. And if you can't afford to donate right now, that's absolutely okay. You can help us out instead by heading on over to iTunes, Apple Podcasts. I gotta rewrite that. Damn it. <laughs> Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and a review. We've got a few reviews to read this week um so so strap in matt we got a, a some of a bunch of them to read okay all right let's go uh the first one comes from um it's just nonsense letters yeah. he gives us five stars and says matt and scott's literary analysis is spot on and allows me to vicariously experience reading worm for the first time I liked Worm before, but this podcast showed me why I enjoy it so much. Their attentiveness to detail really showed me how much I was missing when I read. Now I make a concerted effort to slow down and analyze any book I read. It has significantly improved my reading experience. We've Got Worm is always a joy to listen to. You guys have something special here, and I hope to see more of it in the future. You will, for sure. Mm -hmm. Because we're doing this show now. (laughs) And other shows. Uh, Then we have... Okay. Who, who also gets his five stars and says really enjoyable listen to it if you like worm short and sweet thanks <laughs> uh, 
And, and last with lastly this week, we have the only person who has a real name, Colston, who also gives us five stars and says one of the best literary reviews to listen to. We've got Worm and the new series. We've got Ward is one of the best literary podcasts I've had the pleasure of listening to. Scott and Matt's beat by beat breakdown of the story have helped me gain a new appreciation for Wildbo's writing and have helped me improve upon my own writing. If you are on the fence about reading Worm, either because of its length or of work or because of the genre this podcast is an excellent guide to the world of power humans and death powers keep up the great work work guys that's so nice you guys we really like we really do appreciate you taking the time to, and, and and keep sending those in because it really does help when people see our little show and then see it has like over 80 it's i think we're above 80 ratings now here in the u.s plus however many uh, overseas um people see that and it makes us look just a little bit more legit and then they might they might listen to it yeah. so we appreciate that yeah yeah it's, it's really encouraging and, and motivating yeah. absolutely all right that's it for the show this week next week we move on to arc 7 torch burn it down <laughs>